this morning is from Joshua chapter 17, verses 14 through 18. You can find this on page 227 in the Pew Bibles and up on the screens. Hear the word of God. Then the people of Joseph spoke to Joshua, saying, Why have you given me but one lot and one portion as an inheritance, although I am a numerous people, since all along the Lord has blessed me? And Joshua said to them, If you are a numerous people, go up by yourselves to the forest, and there clear ground for yourselves in the land of the Perizzites and the Rephaim, since the hill country of Ephraim is too narrow for you. The people of Joseph said, The hill country is not enough for us. Yet all the Canaanites who dwell in the plain have chariots of iron, but those in Beth Sha'an and its village and those in the valley of Jezreel. Then Joshua said to the house of Joseph, to Ephraim and Manasseh, You are a numerous people and have great power. You shall not have one allotment only, but the hill country shall be yours. For though it is a forest, you shall clear it and possess it to its farthest borders. You shall drive out the Canaanites, though they have chariots of iron and though they are strong. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So let's begin with a little biblical genealogy. This will be review for all of those of you who go to Sunday school. In Genesis chapter 12, we hear God call Abraham or Abram, as he's known at that time. He's living in Ur of the Chaldees, and God speaks to him and says, leave this country, this country of your father, and go to a land that I'm going to show you. And there I'm going to make you into a great nation. Abraham obeys God. He follows this call. But Abraham is old, and his wife is old, and still they have no children. And they wonder if God's promise to make Abraham a great nation will ever be fulfilled. Finally, when Abraham is 100 years old, Isaac is born. One son, one shot at becoming a great nation. And then God asks Abraham the unthinkable to sacrifice his one and only son. You remember, I trust, how that turns out. And perhaps you also remember that Isaac marries Rebekah and they have twins, Esau and Jacob. Esau is the older and so the birthright falls to him. But then in the worst real estate deal in history, Esau sells his birthright for a bowl of stew. And Jacob, the younger, wilier brother, becomes the heir. Abraham. Isaac and Jacob, father, son, and grandson, three patriarchs of the Israelite nation. One night, Jacob wrestles with God. Now, a few weeks ago in this sermon series through the book of Joshua, we talked about theophanies, Christophanies. 
Jacob wrestles with God and he receives in that three things. He receives a permanent injury in his hip. He receives a blessing and he receives a new name. That name is Israel. And Israel then has 12 sons who become the 12 progenitors of the 12 tribes of Israel. The 12 sons of Israel are Reuben and Simeon, Levi, Judah, Zebulun, Issachar, Dan, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Joseph, and Benjamin. And now, in our story, the 12 tribes of Israel under the leadership of Joshua are in Canaan, And the land is being divided up among the several tribes. Levi, as the priestly tribe, receives no territory, but rather is supported by a tithe from the other tribes. Gad and Reuben have received their territories on the east side of the Jordan River as a result of the conquest of King Og and King Bashan. And once the fighting is wrapped up on the west side of the Jordan in Canaan, Caleb, as an individual, receives the first allotment of territory inside of Canaan because he had wholly followed the Lord. At the advanced age of 85, spoiling for a fight, he chooses Hebron, a territory still filled with Canaanite giants. Last week, we read in chapter 15 about the large number of cities and villages allotted to Judah, a territory nearly half the size of the promised land. And this week we've read two parts of the story of the allotment that is made to the descendants of Joseph. And as it turns out, Joseph is a special case, and there are some problems in this allotment, and that's because The people of Joseph fall into two half-tribes named Manasseh and Ephraim. My wife was born in Basel, Switzerland, and Switzerland is a federal republic like the United States. It's made up of 26 states called cantons. Six of those cantons used to be called half-cantons. Basel has two half-cantons. Baselstadt and Baselland. Think of half states. Think of North Jersey and South Jersey. They're really joined together as one, but somehow they're still regarded as separate. The people of Joseph, and you may have noticed in the passage that we read, they're not called the tribe of Joseph. The people of Joseph are divided into two half tribes. And those half-tribes are named after Joseph's two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. If we consider Manasseh and Ephraim full tribes, then there would be 13 tribes of Israel, which sounds a little weird and maybe a little unlucky. The allotment for the people of Joseph is detailed in chapter 16. But then in chapter 17, the people of Joseph, or perhaps their lawyer, comes to Joshua because they're unhappy. Because they think they didn't get a fair deal. So let's begin by talking about fairness and about justice. I've not done any scientific research 
on the matter, but my experience as a father is that children are born with an innate sense of fairness and justice. It's been my experience that if I'm sitting around in the evening after supper with a child of mine and I say to her, hey, how about some cookies? And I go to the kitchen and I fetch a plate of Oreos and two glasses of milk and I put them on the table for us to enjoy. We will sit there happily dipping our cookies into the milk, eating them one by one. But if there were eight cookies on the plate to begin with and I reach for my fifth cookie, my child, who does not even yet know how to count, will say, hey... That's my cookie. It's not fair. We have an innate sense of justice and fairness. But I have also observed, not just with children, but also with adults, that if we are the ones getting a little more than our fair share, if we are the ones grabbing the fifth cookie, we are quite content. To let that happen without any protest, putting it down, not to injustice, but to our good fortune. At Mount Sinai, Israel receives from God a code of law based on fairness in dealings between people. And the later prophets spend much of their time reminding Israel that God's law forbids anyone, even a priest or a king, from taking advantage of their position, of their power, or of their good fortune to grab that fifth cookie from someone who is weaker or less fortunate than they are. Fairness in our dealings with each other is foundational to God's law. And the truth of the matter is that because of our natural sinfulness, we need the law to remind us of God's standard, and to restrain us from greed. Now, it is God's desire that His law be written on our hearts, that God's law so shape the way that we think and so shape our desires that we automatically and habitually act fairly and justly, even when we're in a position to take advantage. But until that law is written on every human heart, and that won't happen on this side of eternity... God has instituted among us governments whose function is to compel us to do what is right, what we know is right, even when we might be able or inclined to take the fifth cookie. Timothy Henley, one of our members here who is 15 years old, recently began to work as a soccer referee, which is a very hard job, a thankless job. We all go to games to watch our favorite athletes and we love to cheer them on. But the referees, all they get from us is grief. And no one ever asks an umpire for an autograph. They never get a write-up in the sports page. But as much as we despise the men in blue or the men wearing the zebra stripes, you can't have a game without them. Any athletic competition with each team struggling to gain every possible advantage to win, would devolve into complete chaos without a referee. There can be no game, there can be no civil society, there can be no orderly economy without referees. Anyone who has harsh words 
for cops who pull over speeding motorists should be condemned to drive in a city that has no police. Here's what the Westminster Confession says about civil governments and their relationship to God's reign. God, the supreme Lord and King of all the world, hath ordained civil magistrates to be under him for over the people, for his own glory, and for the public good. And to this end hath armed them with the power of the sword for the defense and encouragement of them that are good and for the punishment of evildoers. One of the things young Tim Henley will discover, if he hasn't already discovered, is that the soccer moms and the soccer dads standing on the sidelines will be quick to shout at him if they think he's missed an offside call against the opposing team, but they will be quiet as church mice if he misses an offside call against their own team. That's human nature. We're quick to perceive slights and injustices against ourselves. But when things go the other way, well, we just put that down to good fortune. Which is precisely why God ordained civil magistrates for the public good. And God probably ordained soccer referees for the same reason. So the people of Joseph, who fall into these two half-tribes, Manasseh, And Ephraim, they come to Joshua. They're unhappy with their allotment. And they say to their leader, Why have you given me but one lot and one portion as an inheritance, although I'm a numerous people, since the Lord has always blessed me? Now, before we dig into the merits of this complaint, let me give... And by the way, that accent is actually there in the original text. Before we dig into the merits of this complaint, let me give a little more of the backstory. A little earlier in chapter 17, in a passage that we didn't read, we learn about five women coming to Joshua and to Eliezer, the priest. Here's how verse 3 through verse 6 reads. Now, Zelophehad, the son of Hefer, the son of Gilead, the son of Machir, the son of Manasseh, had no sons, but only daughters. And these are the names of his daughters. Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milcah, and Tirzah. They approached Eliezer the priest and Joshua the son of Nun and the leaders and said, The Lord commanded Moses to give us an inheritance along with our brothers. So according to the mouth of the Lord, he gave them an inheritance among the brothers of his father. Thus there fell to Manasseh, Ten portions, beside the land of Gilead and Bashan, which is on the other side of the Jordan, because the daughters of Manasseh received an inheritance along with the sons. The land of Gilead was an allotment to the rest of the people of Manasseh. Now, just to begin with, I hope you appreciate how countercultural this decision was. This decision to give land to the daughters of Manasseh and not just the sons. This was a decision contrary to the cultural practice of the time, but it was a fair decision. It was fair not only to these five women, but it was also fair to their father, Zelophehad. And this decision signals the deep commitment of biblical religion to equitable treatment of men and women. 
It also raises a painful issue that I'm afraid the church has been too silent about for too long. And that's the issue of sex-selective abortion. In many cultures, both today and in past history, boys are more valued than girls. And often there are economic reasons for this preference. Boys can inherit the land, girls can't. Boys can bring in an income to the family while girls require a dowry to be married off. This preference for boys, empowered with medical technology that allows a a parent to know the sex of the child before it's born, means that more girls than boys are being aborted. According to figures from the World Health Organization, China, Korea, Pakistan, Azerbaijan, and India show the greatest skewing in their sex ratio at birth because of elective abortion. According to a 2010 report, in some areas of China, 130 boys are born for every 100 girls. Now this isn't just a modern phenomenon. In ancient time, the right of a parent to kill unwanted children was widely recognized. And the consequence was the same then. More baby girls than baby boys were killed. One second century Roman writer worried that the shortage of females in the city was leading to a decline in the population of Rome. It is women, after all, rather than men, who determine the birth rate in any population. Based on collections of household lists, one historian concluded that the sex ratio imbalance in Rome eventually reached 140 boys for every 100 girls. Now, what's the point? Valuing boys more than girls, men more than women, is contrary to biblical religion. When God created humankind, he created men and women equally in his image. And our intrinsic worth, what it is that distinguishes us from cats and carrots, is the fact that we're made in the image of God. Throughout the scriptures, we see the prophets and the apostles and Jesus himself treat women with greater regard and greater dignity than was found in the surrounding pagan cultures. Our equal regard for boys and girls should be a distinct mark of Christian culture. And I say that not just because my daughter Mia is my darling. I say that because treating people unfairly or unjustly is simply not compatible with a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. Let me go back to my main thread here. Manasseh receives ten portions of land in the Canaanite territory. And they also receive land on the other side of the Jordan River. And that still leaves the other half-tribe, Ephraim, which receives the central portion of the land of Israel, the portion that has many of the places that we know from familiar Bible stories. And having received all these things from the hand of God, they go to Joshua and say, Why have you only given me one lot and one portion? As an inheritance, although I'm a numerous people. They are a large and a populous tribe. And they want Joshua to give them more territory because there's so many people. Now, 
Joshua's response might seem a little impatient, but I think it's tremendously wise. What he says is this. He says, if you are a numerous people, go up by yourself to the forest. And there clear ground for yourselves in the land of the Perizzites and the Rephaim, since the hill country of Ephraim is too narrow for you. In other words, if you're such a big tribe, stop whining and get to work and carve out a larger territory for yourself. You see those forested hills? Go there and cut the trees and settle there. Israel is a very densely populated country today, but in those days there were far fewer people and they lived only in the choice fertile valleys. It's more work to clear trees off a hillside. Why would you do that when you can settle in the plain? And then the people of Joseph also complained that the portion of the plains that had been allotted to them had troubles because there were still Canaanites there and those Canaanites had iron chariots. Wah! Joshua says to them, You're a numerous people. You have great power. You shall not have one allotment alone, but the hill country shall be yours. For though it is a forest, you shall clear it and possess it to its farthest borders. You shall drive out the Canaanites, though they have chariots of iron and though they are strong. Joshua's ruling here reminds me of what Jesus said. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from everyone who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. What Jesus says is a word of rebuke against prosperous people. This is a word of rebuke against powerful people. It's a word of rebuke directed at people like us. Presbyterians living in the United States. Fallen human nature. Human nature corrupted with sloth and selfishness wants prosperity and power so that it can rest at ease. We want to be rich so we don't have to work. We want power over others so we can tell them what to do. But Jesus, as he so often does, inverts these power relationships. Jesus says, if you have a lot, you need to give a lot. He says, if you have power... You better put that power to work. The people of Joseph, the tribe of Manasseh and the tribe of Ephraim, expected their large numbers to somehow exempt them from the hard work of settling this new country. And Joshua says to them, you guys are big, and so I'm going to give you a big work to do. Now, pull up your big boy pants And go to work. So how does our reading from Joshua apply to our lives today? Well, I think it has three lessons for us. First, when it comes to judging whether or not we've been treated fairly or justly, we should not automatically trust our own instincts. We're actually not the best judges of situations involving ourselves. We should ask someone else whom we trust. Let them be our neutral referee. Tell them what you saw or what you heard and then ask them what they think of the situation. Second, 
We need to value boys and girls, men and women equally. Each human is created in the image of God, and we cannot say that we love God if we do not love God's people. And third, if God has gifted you with position or with power, then don't expect that others will serve you so that you can live a life of leisure ordering other people around. If you've been given much, then get ready to give much to the glory of God and to the advancement of God's kingdom. Let us pray. Father God, for your care, for your people, we give you thanks for your superintending the times and the history of the children of Israel. We give you thanks for preserving them and protecting them, for giving them the law and a land. We give you thanks. Lord God, will you have blessed the whole world through your people Israel. And for those blessings, we give you thanks. Lord, we pray this day that as we find ourselves grafted into the root of Israel, we pray this day that we would be faithful to the call of your law upon our lives, that we would be people who are governed by a sense of fairness, by a sense of justice. We pray that we would be a people who value boys and girls equally, having recognized that they're both made in your image. Lord, we pray that our attitudes and our actions might be reflective of the mind of Christ. And we pray that because of our speech and because of our deeds, that the people around us might give praise to you. For you alone are worthy, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. 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 Would you please now stand and join with me?